This is episode six with Jimmy Chen, CEO and founder of Propel. Welcome to Asian Tech Leaders. My name is Justin Peng, and each week we share insights from Asian tech leaders to help inspire and guide you to reach your full potential. Thanks for spending some time with me today, and let's get started. Jimmy Chen is the CEO and founder of Propel, a software company that aims to make America's safety net more user-friendly. Prior to Propel, Jimmy graduated from Stanford University with a degree in symbolic systems and worked as a product manager at LinkedIn and Facebook. On this episode, I talk with Jimmy about his upbringing as a Chinese immigrant in Kansas City, how he transitioned from somebody who never thought he would start up a company to somebody who ultimately did, and his advice that he'd have for people in their career journey. Hey, Jamie, it's Justin. Thanks for joining the podcast. Hi, Justin. Thanks for having me. Um, a big part of, of what you're doing is really helping to uplift um, the underprivileged using technology, which I'm really excited to, to dig into. Um, but thought we could maybe start with um, a time earlier in your life and specifically talk about the program that you did in your undergrad, Symbolic Systems at Stanford. Um, it's a pretty infamous program having uh, been the program that um, Reid Hoffman, the CEO and founder of LinkedIn was part of, as well as Marissa Meyer, the former CEO of, of Yahoo, and also Chris Cox um, of Facebook. Um, so I was wondering if you could just start talking a little bit more about your experience in that program um, Maybe for listeners who aren't too familiar with, with what Symbolic Systems is, um, it would also be great to hear a, a little bit more about how that program is structured and, and the things that you've learned from that um, that you still use today. Yeah, so it's funny that you say it's an infamous program because I used to joke with my friends in undergrad that the main thing that Symbolic Systems means is signing up for explaining what Symbolic Systems means for the rest of your life once you've chosen that as your college major. Um, but I just, it's, it was a great major. I learned a ton, uh, just to give a quick overview about what it is. And then I'll talk a little bit about what drew me to it in particular, and, and maybe also how it has and has not shaped my career since, um, symbolic systems is supposed to be an interdisciplinary major that combines computer science with cognitive science and a bunch of other uh, things from a variety of places that, um, compose sort of the story of humans and machines. So it's looking at humans and machines from a computer science perspective, but also from a psychology perspective, from a linguistics perspective, from an AI point of view, from a biology point of view, from a philosophy point of view. And then composing those, those all into some kind of picture that someone might use to go build the next generation of machines that actually are really great for humans. So, um, you know, uh, I think the biggest thing that I got out of this major is that it's an interdisciplinary major that requires you to do a bunch of different things as an undergrad. So I was never the best coder. I was never the best mathematician. I was okay at those things, but I wasn't incredible. What I really, really loved was getting to do a little bit of everything across a bunch of disciplines and then stitch those together into one cross-functional project or story. I was really excited by that. Um, and I didn't know that if that was going to be like a useful professional skill or not, I kind of assumed that it was not going to be a useful professional skill. And then I just wished I was better at math. Um, but I later found uh, in, in, in uh, talking to people in tech that there's a role in, in a lot of software companies called product management that is functionally that sort of taking all the different strands of what it takes to build a new piece of technology, not all of which is, is coding, 
also things in the design world, in the business world, in data and so on, and stitching those together into some kind of cohesive story for what it is you're building and how you're building it. So um, I was really fortunate to have this great major at Stanford to lead me in that in that uh, path. Mm. And it's, it's quite um, forward thinking and a very um, advanced degree given you know how long ago the program started but we're starting to see other uh, schools like mit and obviously stanford have a more cross-disciplinary view of building um products and kind of making computer science more of a cross-disciplinary cross-disciplinary type of work so really neat that you got to be part of that program very early on i think that's a trend that's going to continue too right as the tools in computer science get better and better and easier and easier to use you know, you don't need a PhD to become a software engineer now. And I think that's a great thing for the world. And I think it means that we get to focus on some of the things that are more interesting um, than how do we solve the base level problems over and over again, but instead, how do we use the technology that we're building to solve real problems that real people have? Mm, great. And if we could kind of rewind a little bit to your early childhood, I read that you immigrated from China to the US when you were about four years old. Um, could you just talk about your earliest um, memories as a kid and and share with listeners um, what type of environment you were raised in? Yeah, my parents um, came to the United States when I was four years old. We moved to a, a part of Kansas City, and, and we moved there because um, my aunt was living in Kansas City, and my dad did an exchange program with the university there. Um, so felt you know, spent my early childhood feeling fairly out of place. I came to the United States without speaking any English at all, um, same with my parents. And so while they sort of learned English in bits and pieces at, at, at their various jobs, I learned it mostly from watching Sesame Street at home. Um, and, uh, you know, one of my earliest memories, uh, actually on an unrelated note, was, uh, was going with two of my neighbors um, to set up a yard sale in front of the apartment that we used to live in Kansas City. We got a bunch of like random toys and candies and random knickknacks from our house. I put them on this little table outside of our apartment and I sold things for like 25 cents a piece, um, which I have joked about being my first ever entrepreneurial adventure back when I was, I think, you know, five or six years old. Do you remember what you did with that money? Oh, I saved it. I, I definitely <laughs> just like kept it like, in my room and stared at it and didn't want to touch it and was scared of it. <laughs> That's great. And did you have any other um, Asian peers or friends growing up or were you uh, a clearly visible minority in Kansas City in the community that you're in? You know, I, I guess I didn't really know any different mm. um, having grown up in Kansas City. Uh, certainly Asians were in the minority in a place like that. I did have Asian friends and Asian friends that I met through Chinese school or I met through the Chinese American community in Kansas City. I remember joking, jokingly, but also I think kind of seriously realizing at one point that my mother knew basically every other Chinese American who lived in Kansas City. Um, and so, you, you know, it's just basically any, any Asian person you come across uh, as you're walking about the city, like my mother probably knows them. And I remember getting to California for the first time um, when I was at Stanford for college and like seeing Asians on the street and being like, wait a minute, but we don't know them. And feeling like how, how strange it was that that was my reaction. Um, I certainly did have some, some, some close Asian friends growing up who are still close friends of mine today. Um, 
you know, and I certainly treasure and value those, those, uh, those friendships. Mm. And, and as a kid growing up, did you have any role models that inspired you to, you know, go down a specific career path? Um, or was it much more self-guided and, and led by curiosity as opposed to seeing a role model and trying to mimic them? I think I've been fortunate to have a lot of role models over the years. The first and easiest answer for me is my father. Mm. Um, my father came to the United States as a business person doing like sales and had a, he like had an MBA. That was the degree that he got in the United States. Um, but in the late nineties, early two thousands, it became clear that his line of business just wasn't going to be, you know, the thing that could really sustain our family. And so my dad, for several years would wake himself up at 4 a.m. in the morning every morning to learn how to code. And this is before coding was like building websites. This was like old, you know, building a .NET framework kind of thing in the late 90s, early 2000s. But um, I remember watching my father go through the, the, the challenges and rigors of teaching himself how to be a software engineer with no background in that whatsoever. Um, and then just feeling immensely fortunate and privileged to get to go to Stanford and study computer science and to learn from some of the best computer science staff in the world and, and feeling like, you know, uh, you know, this is truly a privilege for me. Mm. So was there actually a moment that you remember from your childhood where you're like, wow, this is really inspiring. I want to, you know, spend more time, whether it's in your academic life or career, specifically closer to uh, computer science or programming, um, or was it a much more organic and natural journey for you? Um, you know, the first computer science class they teach, I don't actually know if this is still the case, but when I was at Stanford, the intro to computer science class is mostly making computer games. That's like the first programming assignments are using like a, a pseudo programming language to make like a, a little computer game. And I think there's a reason for that. And I think it's a lot, it's because a lot of people get interested in computers because of using them for, for fun, right? And that's exciting that you would get to build something like that. So that was certainly my, my story growing up as a kid, um, as I'm sure it is for many others, playing computer games. Um, I think the first code, quote unquote, that I ever wrote was for my TI-83 graphing calculator, where I made stupid little little games and apps for my, my graphing calculator using like the, the whatever version of assembly you could write on, on a graphing calculator. Um, and that was before I, I, I'd ever taken a computer science class or read any books about computers. I didn't even know that was computer science. It was just making my calculator do funny things. Um, I think that's really where it started for me. Very cool. And the decision to go to Stanford, was it a no-brainer for you? Or was, was that a tough decision either um, because you were looking at other colleges or you were looking at other programs? Um, I was really excited about Stanford. You know, the reason I was actually originally excited about Stanford is different from computer science, even though like that ends up being the thing that I spent the most time on there. Um, I was really excited about psychology when I was in high school. And I thought that what I like, I thought I wanted to be a sports psychologist. That was the thing that was fascinating to me. Um, and in AP psychology in high school, we spent a lot of time reading the work of psychologists who worked at Stanford and psychology professors at Stanford. And there's some of the, the leaders in their fields are running experiments um, and writing papers from Stanford. And so when I went to Stanford, that was the thing that I was actually honestly most excited about, not the computer science, not any of the other stuff, not the nice weather. It was really the psychology. Um, and so, you know, after getting there, I, I, I did indeed really love a number of those courses. But one of the things that didn't quite mesh right with me was sort of 
the level of scientific rigor in a lot of the the classes that I took, um, and realizing that like at a certain point, a lot of psychology is uh, is is like part art and part science is that we just don't have the tools necessarily to make it a purely scientific pursuit. And that was kind of unsatisfying to me for a number of reasons as an 18 or 19 year old. And so I started to supplement the psychology with computer science, which I did feel like was a hard thing that I could really wrap my arms around and feel like it was truly technical. And uh, that's actually how I got into the symbolic systems major was I had, I found myself by like my, I forget it was sophomore, junior year, being like, I had a bunch of psychology credits, I have a bunch of computer science credits. Like, what do I do with these? How do I graduate? And the answer was, oh, there happens to be a major that stitches those two together. That's great. And then at, coming out of college, you started um, working in software engineering. And did you actually start at Yahoo or Landmark Graphics, which was a, was a role that you took straight out of college? So I had internships at those two places, okay. and those were the places that I first learned how to code in a professional environment, which is really, really gratifying and continues to be a useful experience to this mm. day. Um, when I graduated from college, this is in 2010, I uh, was debating between an offer from uh, the makers of the Farmville game um, and, and, uh, and, and being a, a product manager at LinkedIn. So mm. I was going to be either an engineer on Farmville or a product manager at LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, and although it like sounds a little goofy in retrospect, because Farmville hasn't aged very well over the past nine years, um, it was a hard choice at the time. Like Farmville was gonna offer me like significantly more salary. It was like the coolest Facebook game at the time. It was yeah. growing really, really quickly. It was like a social phenomenon. Their office was like incredible with free food everywhere. And like, um, it, it just, it seemed like a lot of fun to go work in a game. Um, but I ultimately chose to go work at LinkedIn because of what I said earlier around product management and being excited about not just um, doing one thing, but wanting to to stitch together all the different parts of software development to build something that I was really excited in. Mm, very interesting. And the, the one area I saw in your profile which um, stands out to me is an internship consulting um, project that you did with um, a subsidiary of the World Bank Group, CGAP. Um, could you share a little bit more about what you did there and what actually compelled you to work more in like a development type space? Obviously, is focused on um, technology to some degree, but I'm curious if you could share a little bit more about what led you to that and, and the experience that you had there. Yeah, so that was my internship um, when I did the Stanford in Washington program, which is a fantastic program. It's part of the study abroad program at Stanford. It's not abroad, obviously. Um, but it's spending a quarter in Washington, D.C., um, doing an internship at some kind of organization in D.C. And so I was fortunate to get placed at the World Bank, um, and in particular, a subsidiary of it called CGAP, the Consultative Group to Assist the Poor. Um, this was in 2009, and one of the new things that was happening across the world in 2009 was the start of kind of mobile banking and mobile money management services. So M-Pesa and Sub-Saharan Africa and a few other ones throughout the world we're starting to get traction for the first time. We were starting to see people who had never interacted with their money in a digital format, had never used a bank before, suddenly have something that approximated a banking service. And so um, I joined as a bright-eyed and bushy-tailed 20-year-old with uh, like a bunch of CS classes under my belt from Silicon Valley to uh, the World Bank, which is a group of mostly PhDs and people who have done in-depth economic research on issues that I just couldn't even wrap my head around. Um, and I found that actually the place where I could be potentially the most useful was um, 
taking the mobile money interfaces and doing a usability teardown of them. So this notion of like, uh, okay, so think about a family that is using a mobile banking service for the first ever time. They've gotten their first ever phone. It's probably like a flip phone. And they're able to now send money through that flip phone. How do you build an interface that uh, goes back to first principles of usability and UI design that is intuitive for someone who's never considered that before? So we looked at many examples of how ATMs worked in developing countries, common kind of uh, misconceptions about how, how menus worked and, 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 and things like that came up with a set of usability best practices. So I was fortunate that, that was a, it was an internship. It was a really, really fun internship. It was an organization that I stayed in touch with afterwards. Um, you know, telling that story reminds me of that Steve Jobs Stanford graduation speech, which is a little bit old at this point. I think it was like 2005 or something, where he talks about how sometimes the things you do in your career seem random, but you can only make sense of them when you look backwards. And that's how I, very much how I feel about my career. At the time, it wasn't that this was some kind of intentional decision or some kind of strategy that I'd laid out, but um, having founded now a civic tech organization that aims to use the best of technology to help very low-income Americans navigate financial services and social services, I look back at my past and, and realize that I've, I've actually happened to be fortunate to have done a bunch of things that have pointed me in the right direction for that. Mm. And that's so, yeah, it's definitely fascinating as I, as I look at your story, right? Um, and I think, you know, another question around that was you had um, a successful career in product management, both at LinkedIn and Facebook, um, and then ultimately made a decision to, to leave and become a fellow at uh, Blue Ridge Labs Significance Lab. And it sounds like that's where you actually started to tinker, tinker around and experiment with the idea that would eventually become uh, Propel. Do you mind talking a little bit more about that initial leap from Facebook? How difficult was that decision for you um, and the thought process that was happening at the time? I really, really valued the time that I spent at Facebook, worked with really, really talented people and um, was fortunate to get to build a product that was used by over a billion people throughout the world. So I was managing the Facebook groups team. You know, Facebook groups when I left was being used by 700 million people each month. It's like, you know, 8% of the global population was using the product that my team was building. And that, that was pretty exciting. Um, I left for a couple of reasons. I left because I think Facebook, I mean, this is, this is 2014, so still glory days of Facebook before all the, all the challenges the companies faced recently. But it felt like things of the company were running in such a like smooth fashion. And it's like, you know, what, what value am I really adding here? I'm just kind of a cog in the, in the machine. That was number one. Um, but number two, and the thing that really got stuck in my head was, you know, some of the most talented people that I'd ever worked with in my career worked at Facebook from an engineering perspective, from a business perspective and so on. And the impact that they had on the world was um, often to, you know, to make it easier for people to chat with their friends or to make you see more pictures of cats, right? It's like, why are we having the best minds of our generation working on issues that I thought were, were things that were, were really just um, helping people to enjoy themselves or to like make people who are already comfortable, already successful, even more comfortable. Um, and I think that doesn't apply to just Facebook. I think that's a criticism that I feel of a lot of Silicon Valley and a lot of tech companies, that there's a lot of technology being used to comfort the already comfortable. Um, and that is happening at a time when we have increasing economic inequality in the United States and abroad. And there are so many different types of issues across the world 
for which technology could play a meaningful role. Um, the reason that I moved to Brooklyn to do the Blue Ridge Labs program is uh, because of a nagging feeling that tech was just not doing enough, that tech was a really powerful industry and that engineers and product managers had a powerful set of tools at their disposal and those weren't being used to their full capability to solve some of the problems that I cared most deeply about, very specifically poverty. Mm. So was it a pretty easy choice in that sense because that inner voice and passion to solve a bigger, more meaningful problem to you was very clear in your head? So it was almost a no-brainer or was there a lot of an internal debate when you made that switch? I was fortunate to have um, worked at LinkedIn and Facebook, two companies that went through uh, like um, a public offering in the early 2010s and to have made a good salary from those places. Um, such that by the time that I was, I think it was 26 or 27 and it was 26, um, it wasn't a financially risky decision for me to move across the country and do a fellowship program that was going to pay me very little and then to start a company that was not going to pay me for two years. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 I will never forget that most people don't have that opportunity. Most people can't just make that choice. And so for me, it wasn't a risky decision because I had already built enough financial stability where I could afford to take a risk. And frankly, I was at the point in my life, you know, as an unmarried 26 year old, um, where I could take a risk like that. And that even if things didn't work out, what's the worst that would happen, right? It's like, I would, I would learn some stuff and I'd go back and find a job. Um, so it's, it's hard for me to characterize this as a risk in any, any meaningful grand scheme of things way. Right. And kind of switching gears to Propel. So Propel, um, was founded in 2014 in Brooklyn, as you mentioned, and the primary product is uh, Fresh EBT, uh, which currently I think has 2 million people using it regularly across the US. Uh, for listeners, do you mind just sharing a little bit more about um, Fresh EBT and kind of the audience and population that's serving? Yeah, so I mentioned the program that I joined after Facebook, it's called Blue Ridge Labs. It's focused on helping tech entrepreneurs start new companies that address poverty in some way. We did that by talking to low-income Americans and learning more about what their challenges were, trying to build prototypes that would actually be useful to meet some kind of need. One of the things that I spent a lot of time thinking about and learning about during my fellowship program was the food stamp program in the United States. The food stamp program is officially called SNAP, and it's used by about 40 million Americans right now to help them put food on the table. For those 40 million Americans, the way that it actually works is you get a debit card called an EBT card. And you can use that card to make grocery to make purchases at grocery stores on, on unprepared food. The card gets loaded automatically by your state government on a monthly cadence. And when we talked to people who were using these EBT cards to make purchases at grocery stores, we heard from them that every time they go shopping for groceries, the first thing that they do is call a 1-800 number on the back of the card so they can check their balance. And they do that because it is extremely embarrassing to go to the checkout line to swipe your groceries, to realize you don't have enough to pay for it, have the whole transaction be declined, and then have the cashier say, you know, which of, the, you know, which of these food items do you not want to buy? And everyone on the line staring at you, and it's clear that you're the food stamp lady. Um, and so it's really important that people who have EBT cards know how much they have left on those cards. Um, we thought it was odd that people were calling this phone hotline. You know, uh, if you think about how a debit card that's issued by a bank works, 
most of the most popular cards that people use to make payments in stores also come with a free mobile app. Let's you check your balance and see your transaction history. So we asked why that didn't exist for the EBT card, which is used by 40 million Americans. It's a huge financial tool. Um, and there is no good reason. And so we built really the first uh, mobile kind of um, the first mobile banking product for people who have an EBT card that helps them to not call that 1-800 number and instead provides them a free mobile app that allows them to check their balance and transaction history. That was kind of the original premise of the Fresh EBT app. As time has gone on, you know, what we've gotten really excited about is using the fact that everyone with an EBT card needs to know their balance as an on-ramp towards broader financial health. So when you open our app, not only can you check your balance and transaction history, we see that as an opportunity to engage a family that's low income and using a safety net service with all sorts of other social supports that help them to improve their overall financial health. So that includes things like cross enrollment and programs. So if you get food stamp benefits, you almost certainly also qualify for a variety of other publicly funded programs like Medicaid or public housing or heating assistance. Those programs are generally not enrolled in in a very high rate. So we think this is an opportunity for us to promote those programs. It's a way for us to help our users to save money. So we partner directly with grocery retailers and brands to help our users clip grocery coupons inside the app so they can spend less on food. And we also help our users find more jobs. So we publish uh, job postings inside the app that are local to where the user lives. And those span the range of um, kind of traditional full-time jobs, part-time jobs, seasonal jobs, on-demand economy jobs, and so on. It's amazing. And also, I uh, was really interested to hear and learn more about the business model. Number one, this is a for-profit company, not a nonprofit. And um, I believe the main way that um, revenue is being generated right now, is, is it primarily through ads for, from retailers, for example, or are there other uh, key re revenue sources right now? That's right. So Fresh EBT is completely free to consumers. We also don't charge any government agency to use the app. Our only line of revenue is charging the organizations that promote their services through Fresh EBT. And those services are thoroughly vetted to make sure that they're positive for the financial health of our users. So very specifically, we only partner with organizations that either help our users to save money or make more money. So you can be sure that everything you find in Fresh EBT uh, that we are paid for is also helping our users make some tangible financial improvement in their lives. Examples being things like grocery coupons or job postings. Yeah, great. And are you finding a lot of um, engagement from your users? And, and this is something that they use um, quite frequently? Yeah, um, the average person opens Fresh EBT about nine times per month. And you mentioned earlier that we have more than 2 million Americans across the country that use Fresh EBT now. Um, those things combine to make Fresh EBT one of the top finance apps in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and it's the only finance app on the Android platform and the iPhone platform that's really focused on this core demographic of very low income Americans in the United States, You know, uh, many of whom don't have bank accounts, these are folks who are really using the food stamp program um, and relying on it to put food on the table. So we're quite proud of that, 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 that we can um, build a product that really meets their needs and that when you look at the overall numbers and you look at the engagement, it stacks up quite favorably against other finance apps you might see in the world. You know, when we talk to our users about this, um, one of the things that we've heard uh, from a number of different people who use Fresh EBT is that the Fresh EBT app is the only app on their phone that is really designed for them. There are lots of other apps that people use and that are quite effective, right? If you are low income, you probably use the, the 
the Google Maps app or the YouTube app, and those are general population apps used by everyone. Um, but you know, I'm a, a 31 year old who lives in Brooklyn. There are lots of apps that are specifically catered towards me. If you think about people who are designing with me as their core demographic, there are not a lot of apps that are designed with a you know a 40 year old single mother who gets food stamps and lives in Kansas City. Like there are just not that many apps that are thinking of that as the core demographic. And so we are proud to be the app that thinks about that as our core demographic. Mm. And on that, so curious to know when you do or have approached um, investors, and right now, you know, Propel has an amazing roster of investors, including Andreessen, Kleiner Perkins, Kevin Durant, who we mentioned earlier. Um, how easy or difficult is that conversation when it comes to uh, raising money? Because there's definitely that um, social and moral aspect of, of what you're doing with, with Propel, which I'm sure resonates with everybody else. Um, but could you share a little bit more about the fundraising conversation and, and kind of key questions or um, feedback that you've been hearing from the investment community? I think the biggest thing that I've learned about raising money for Propel and, you know, um, to back up a little bit, you know, we've always run Propel as a for-profit company. And when I started Propel, I had this dream that, um, you know, coming to, of age in Silicon Valley, seeing all sorts of tech startups be successful using the tools of consumer software and venture capital. I really believe that those are powerful tools. Um, and the the hypothesis was, what if we take some of the, the those tools and ways of thinking of the world and ways of thinking about meeting a user's need and scaling really quickly and um, you know hiring the top talent in, in the world, what if we took those skills and those assets and applied them towards fighting poverty? Like, couldn't we make a meaningful dent on poverty um, using those skill sets that have generally not been applied in that context? And so um, going out to raise venture capital, I think I was a little naive at first. So I started the company in 2014 and spent several years, frankly, struggling to raise capital for the company. I think I underestimated how crazy of a pitch it was going to be to go to investors and say, we're a food stamp software company that's trying to make a billion dollars someday. And we're going to do that by helping people to get out of poverty. That was just like, um, I think I had underestimated how wild that was going to sound to a lot of people and how unbelievable it was to a lot of investors. So we struggled for a while. Um, I think one of the things that I realized, and so, so well, I guess to back up, there are really two things that changed the story for us and that helped us to close investors and now to be a company that is fortunate to have, you know, fantastic support from the investment community. Um, the first is that we just grew. So we started to prove the doubters wrong in terms of actually we can generate a lot of users for this product. Actually, we can generate lots of revenue for this product and we can do it in a way that's actually net positive to the product itself. So, you know, I talked about how our business models ads, you know, our users don't think of them as ads. Our users think of them as, oh, it's a way for me to find jobs or it's a way for me to save money on food. Right. Um, and so we can monetize in a way that actually makes the core product stronger. And we started to show signs of that. So that was one thing that turned it around is we, we started to, to get more, um, more credibility in that. But I think the other one was just me coming to peace with the fact that most investors are not going to invest in Propel. Like most people just don't get it. Most people haven't ever experienced anything like this in their real lives, especially if you're talking about like a venture investor in Silicon Valley. They don't know the first thing about poverty. They don't know the first thing about how low-income Americans think about managing their finances. And for someone like that, you know, you can read a book or a news article about poverty, but um, how do you reach the conviction that this is really a good business and that this is really going to be successful if you don't have some version of personal experience with it? 
And I think we've made we've we've sort of come to terms with the fact that like not everyone's going to be an investor in the company, and that's totally okay. But the folks that do invest in Propel, I think, are people who really deeply understand both the social challenge that we're trying to solve, as well as why that's a huge business opportunity. And that usually comes from some prior either professional or personal experience that gives them some insight into the, the specific challenges that we're trying to solve. And that's not a perspective that all investors in Silicon Valley have. Mm. Great. And in a, a previous interview that um, I read, I saw a quote from you that said that you never thought you would have been a startup founder, at least when you talked to 18-year-old Jimmy. Um, could you share a little bit more about you know, some of the lessons that you've learned being a startup founder and CEO of the last five years? Yeah, and um, I think uh, I was just reflecting on this when, when talking to you earlier about kind of uh, how I grew up and what environment I grew up in. Um, I think I grew up in uh, an environment where my natural inclination was to try to fit in, was like that I wanted to be the same as everyone else. I wanted to watch the same sports as everyone else. I wanted to have the same haircut as the other kids at school. I wanted to eat the same foods. Um, and that I was uncomfortable being different, despite the fact that it was unavoidable that I was different because I grew up Chinese and you know had a very different culture and different parents and all that. But I spent a lot of time trying to fit in. And uh, this is the case you know, through my college years too. Um, and even to some extent through my professional years. Um, but as an entrepreneur, I mean, that is one career path where you are rewarded for being different, where you really do have to be different because if you're trying to build a business that hasn't been built before, you can't do it the way that others have built businesses. And then you can't just copycat your way into success here. Um, and so I think that was from a culture standpoint, something that I had to like think deeply about and to like, to, to try to address on, on a personal level of, you know, how comfortable am I uh, like blazing my own trail here. Um, and, 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 and like for me personally, it was, it was not just that we were running another startup that could be similar to 20 other startups out there. We were out there like, I'm out there like trying to pitch a food stamp software company that has never existed before. Um, and trying to gain confidence in myself pitching something that was so unique and that was so different from the norm and getting a lot of people raising their eyebrows at me and, and feeling a lot of the same feelings that I had, you know, as an Asian kid who was eating my lunch with a, a pair of chopsticks of like kids in the lunchroom being like, oh, what kind of business is that, right? It's like, it's the same, this similar type of emotion, except like, turns out you can be vindicated as an adult because you can be contrarian and right. And that's where the most interesting businesses come from. Um, and so if I think about kind of one of my journeys, I think that's been one of the themes in my life is thinking about like, when do you fit in, when do you stand out? And when's the right time to optimize for either of those two? Mm. And especially with your jump to starting your own company, curious to know, how was the conversation with your family and your parents during that time? Because it is quite a big risk and you know, a lot of, um, number one, the older generation, and number two, um, coming from an Asian culture, taking more risk, and especially if there's some financial risk, can, can not necessarily always be supportive. So what was that conversation like within your family? Yeah, my parents were incredibly supportive and all the credit in the world goes to them um, for understanding why I wanted to do it, um, for understanding that it wasn't going to be a straight path. So there were going to be times where, uh, you know, we weren't going to be making much money as a company. Things weren't going to be looking very good from an external perspective. 
but that that's a necessity in order to get to the place you need to be as a company. Mm. Um, so, you know, they really have been nothing but supportive throughout this entire journey. And I really have appreciated that. Um, that doesn't mean they're not Asian parents. That doesn't mean they don't ask the same types of questions that you might expect they would stereotypically ask. Like my mom for several years asked me like, Hey Jimmy, it's same. It sure sounds like you're doing stuff in business now. Like you're moving from computer science to business. Like you should get an MBA, right? You should go to business school and get an advanced degree. You can't not have an advanced degree and be a successful professional. Um, and I tell my mom, like, no, mom, like I, I do a guest lecture at Harvard Business School every year at this point. Like they, they, they like wrote a case about the company. Like we, we are now in the syllabus for Harvard Business School in like the MBA classes. Like I've guest lectured at Columbia Business School, Stanford Business School. Like. I, I don't know, mom. <laughs> um, and I, I don't know if she's given up the argument yet. I would actually not be surprised if the next time I see her, she continues to make the same case, but um, it's out of love. Yeah, exactly. Coming from a good place. Um, yeah. And two final, two final questions, and then we can wrap up. And this is more for, you know, the, the listeners who are kind of in um, searching and exploration part of their journey. Uh, question number one is, how would you advise someone to figure out what their passion is? I am not a believer in people having individual, like you only have one passion and that's the only thing you can do in your life. And I think people can feel passionate about a variety of different things. Like I think it's totally fair and legitimate to feel passionate about doing something well. And that thing that you do well could be any number of different types of things or the passion could be working with people and you could work with people in any number of contexts. And so I don't think um, we have to be too restrictive in terms of like figuring out what that is. Um, I think, you know, from a practical standpoint, the only advice that I can give is a, like looking back on my own schooling and education, um, try a lot of stuff, try all sorts of crazy, weird unusual things that you might not expect that you would enjoy and maybe you won't enjoy them, but maybe you will. Um, and I remember in, in college feeling like, or in high school too, feeling like the risk of like trying some new activity and not liking it just seemed massive. And now with, in retrospect, it's like, that would be, um, you know, it was really like a no risk proposition to go try some new class or try a new activity or make a new friend. Um, and so certainly that's what I would advise people in that situation. Mm. And then second question is, what are some ways to figure out if it's time to move on from a job or, or make a big change in one's career? To me, the first sign is being honest with yourself about whether you're still learning. Um, and that especially early on in someone's career, I think the velocity of learning is the single most important thing to optimize for. And a lack of velocity in learning ought to be the biggest red flag of, you know, there's someplace better for me. Um, and I think you can learn in a variety of different ways. You can learn because your day-to-day -day job is challenging, or you can learn because your peers push you, or your boss pushes you, or your industry is interesting and growing. Any number of those things I think are fair and legitimate. But if you take an honest look and none of those things seems to be the case, um, or that those things don't add up to something that you feel you're satisfied with from a learning perspective, then I think that's the time to really ask the hard questions. Great. And we'll end on that. Thank you so much, Jimmy. And you know, before we wrap up, just want to acknowledge you for all the work that you've done, especially through Propel, helping um, 2 million Americans um, create a, a more safe, safer financial security net and, and have access to jobs and, 
and saving money. And then secondly, acknowledging you for being a leader within the Asian technology uh, community. It's it's great to hear your story and and see what you're doing. And I'm sure the conversation today is, has motivated and inspired a lot of listeners. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Justin. Thanks, Jimmy. Take care. Bye. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Asian Tech Leaders. Please share this with your friends and follow us and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting platform. Looking forward to our next conversation. And until then, take care.